Good evening, everyone. We begin the readout tonight with something that we haven't had in four long years. A president who will actually talk tough to Russia. President Biden continued his cleanup diplomacy today, bringing America back into the international fold at today's NATO summit in Brussels. And in a news conference following a very busy day, he previewed what is undoubtedly this week's main event, his meeting on Wednesday with Russian President Vladimir Putin. I'm going to make clear to President Putin that there are areas where we can cooperate if he chooses. And if he chooses not to cooperate and acts in a way that he has in the past relative to cybersecurity and some other activities, then we will respond. We should decide where it's in our mutual interest in the interest of the world to cooperate and see if we can do that. And the areas where we don't agree, make it clear what the red lines are. That's a stark departure from his predecessor, who you might remember humiliated himself and us by backing Putin over American intelligence at their infamous meeting in Helsinki and repeatedly threatened to end America's involvement with the NATO alliance that has defined the world order since after World War II. President Biden, on the other hand, held meetings with America's key partners, reaffirming the U.S. commitment to the alliance and to its collective defense pact, known as Article 5, which states that an attack on one is an attack on all, which our European allies lived up to after 9-11 in Afghanistan. Biden also held smaller meetings on the sidelines, including one with Turkish President Erdogan, a potential warm-up for his meeting with Putin. Biden refused to discuss in detail what he intended to bring up with Putin, but said he wasn't looking for conflict. Meanwhile, Putin himself has already spoken out. In an exclusive interview with NBC's Keir Simmons, the Russian autocrat weighed in on American politics and the January 6th insurrection in particular. Putin defended Ashley Babbitt, the woman shot and killed by Capitol Police, while attempting to breach the speaker's lobby. And he argued, with literally no sense of irony, that the roughly 500 accused insurrectionists who are facing charges are being persecuted for their political beliefs. And if it sounds like Putin is now a full-fledged member of the Republican effort to whitewash the events of that day, look no further than the leader of the crusade to rewrite history, Moscow's little helper, Wisconsin Senator Ron Johnson. We've seen plenty of video of people in the Capitol, and, and they weren't rioting. It, they don't, it doesn't look like an armed insurrection when you have people that breach the Capitol, and I don't condone it, but they're staying within the rope lines in the rotunda. That's not what an armed insurrection would look like. Wow. For his part, uh, in, his NBC news con- in his news conference today, President Biden renewed a call for allies to defend democracy against autocracies. And with respect to the MAGA insurrection, he said our allies know the character of our nation. I think that they have seen things happen as we have that shocked them and surprised them that could have happened. But I think they, like I do, believe the American people are not going to sustain that kind of behavior. Joining me now is Ben Rhodes, former deputy national security advisor to President Obama. Julia Ayafi, founding partner and Washington correspondent for the new media company Puck, And Michael Steele, former chairman of the RNC and an MSNBC columnist. And Ben, I want to start with you. President Biden, he said that every leader who spoke today, uh, 10 to 12 of them, thanked him for meeting with Putin right now. He called Putin a worthy adversary. What do you make of Putin weighing in on the MAGA insurrection on the side of the insurrectionists? Doesn't seem surprising, but what do you make of him going out of his way to do that? 
Well, I don't think there's anything surprising about it at all. I mean, there's an element of Putin that has always been something of a troll who likes to insert himself in American politics. But let's not forget that if you look at the Russian disinformation campaigns and interventions in our politics, it's often to fuel the kind of conspiracy theories that led to that insurrection. They've been a party to this kind of information ecosystem that has propagated conspiracy theory. I, I think on the other hand of the, uh, the equation, you have in Joe Biden someone who sees connections between all these things he's doing, uh, very deliberately wanting to meet with our allies before he sits down with Vladimir Putin, wanting to kind of, just as he's working to try to fortify American democracy at home, where there's a lot more work to do, uh, there's work to be done to try to unify our G7 partners and our NATO allies, who are kind of the core of that democratic world that has been the subject of Vladimir Putin's efforts to sow divisions within our democracies and between us. And so I think his hope and objective here is let's try to get unity within our alliances as best we can. Let me hear from these other leaders before I sit down with Putin. Uh, and then this whole trip will culminate with probably a, a series of pretty tough messages while exploring if there's some areas where they can find some way to, if not cooperate, at least coexist. Yeah, absolutely. And Julia, this is your area of expertise. Uh, let me let you listen for a little bit to Vladimir Putin in this interview with Keir Simmons. He wouldn't even say Alexei Navalny's name. Take a listen. Will you commit that you will personally ensure that Alexei Navalny will leave prison alive? I proceed from the premise that the person that you have mentioned, the same kind of measures will apply, not in any way worse than to anybody else who happens to be in prison. His name is Alexei Navalny. People will note that you were I don't care. to say I don't that care. he would leave prison alive. I don't care. I mean, obviously, this is somebody who has made his chief rival basically illegal. He has made his organization, he's outlawed it, and he's starving and persecuting this man. How ironic for someone like that uh, to talk about persecution. At this point, do you perceive uh, Putin as fearing that the alliance, you know, the band is back together and he's on the other side? I think that's an excellent point about, you know, Putin talking about persecution. It's quite rich. Uh, you know, the the protester, or sorry, the rioter who broke into Nancy Pelosi's office and put his feet on her desk and that infamous photograph was on Russian state TV over the weekend. And as some people have pointed out, if somebody had done that to Putin's office, he wouldn't be alive to tell the tale on American <laughs> TV, to put it mildly. Um as for the, I think, yeah, uh, I think Putin is probably a little worried, but he does, clearly doesn't seem too worried. He's trying to project an, uh, an aura of calm that he's the one adult in the room kind of watching with amusement at the American circus. I do think the Republican Party is certainly providing a lot of ammunition for the Russian side when they talk, you know, about, you know, when they engage in whataboutism and say, who are you to lecture us about democracy and human rights? Uh, I also think that he, if if I were Vladimir Putin, I would be looking at this and uh, thinking, how long is Biden going to be around? And who is he going to be replaced by in 2024? Is he going to be replaced by somebody who is much friendlier toward Russia, somebody of the Trumpist camp? Um, so I wonder if he's waiting this out and saying like, OK, I just have to get through the next four years um, and then I'll be fine. Yeah, I mean, and to that point, Michael, I mean, the the sort of 
you know, Putinization of the Republican Party really precedes Trump. And I, I can remember during the President Obama era, people like Rudy Giuliani praising Putin as the real great leader and, you know, liking his autocratic style even before Donald Trump started supplicating himself to him. Let me let, me let uh, you hear President Biden. And this is him talking about why Republicans don't want to investigate the MAGA insurrection. It is a shock and surprise that what's happened in terms of the consequence of President Trump's phony populism has has happened. And it is disappointing that so many of my Republican colleagues in the Senate, who I know know better, have been reluctant to take on, for example, an, an investigation because they're worried about being primaried. And he does talk about the fact that Republicans are also diminished in numbers, leadership fractured. I mean, it, it, is, it is an interesting thing, Michael, for the Republican Party, the party of Ronald Reagan, to, in a very real way, have become the party of Vladimir Putin. Oh, yeah, we are a hell of a long way from Reagan's declaration of the evil empire, uh, formerly known as uh, the USSR, Soviet Union, Russia, uh, and and just calling out, um, you know, the balls and strikes in the relationship between the United States and Russia uh, to the point that you made about, you know, this going back uh, before Trump. Um, a lot of the Rudy Giuliani's and the others, a lot of the we're starting to find out, and I think we will find out more, were business relationships and ties uh, that created this opportunity, this 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 entry point uh, for Putin and his allies uh, in Russia to get a hold of, you know, to look at both parties and see where can we land. And, you know, when I went to one of the um, uh, inaugural parties in 2016, uh, 17. It was amazing to me, Joy. There were more Russians in the room than there were Americans, um, and it was hosted, um, you know, by you know political interests that had financial ties. So you begin to see how all of this works, and I think I think, you know, both Ben and Julia have made the salient point when it comes to Putin. He's playing a longer game than most Americans can even imagine. He's thinking, okay, I can hold up until 2024. My bet is that a, if not Trump, a Trump-like, someone a little bit more charismatic and a little bit more sophisticated will rise to the top. Uh, and I'm good. And so what you're going to see and what Biden is doing is so important is he's trying to lay down some cobblestones to sort of guide the next the next version of this relationship to try to push it, you know, Navalny and other, I don't know who this band is. What, what, I don't know. I don't know who the dissident is. Who's, who's, you know, he's yeah. playing this kind of like I'm, I'm above it all, but he's strategically trying to position himself to be in a stronger point when we get into the next presidential election and all hell breaks loose with what they're going to do in that election. So yeah, the long game for Russia is the bigger, is the bigger play here. Yeah, and Julie, you were giving out, you were giving an amen there. I mean, you've got a guy who's nicknamed Moscow Mitch is the leader of the Republican Party. You've got, you know, people have called talked about Leningrad Lindsay. You've got uh, obviously Ron Johnson, who's enamored of the Russian point of view. Is that the issue here that he knows that he's got more than one ally here, not just Trump? Oh, absolutely. And to Michael's point, you know, the Republican Party has pivoted from uh, spreading democracy in part because of the disaster that was the Iraq War 
and has turned uh, into embracing this role, this role of defending minority rule and saying, oh, well, not, we're not actually a democracy, we're a representative republic. And the more they try to hold on to power by undemocratic means, like packing the courts and uh, gerrymandering and post uh, passing voter restriction laws, the more they are in kind of natural alignment with Moscow. I do have to say on my last trip to Moscow, right before the pandemic, I went to this trendy food hall and I sat down at an Azeri restaurant, ordered something, ordered a glass of beer, and they brought me a Giuliani and Associates glass. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah. so I was like, wow, how Makes did sense. that glass get there? Yeah, makes sense. Uh, I have to ask you before we go, Ben, uh, about the, the the end of the Bibi Netanyahu era, at least for now. We don't know if it's permanent. Um, this guy has been around. I mean, I was uh, telling my team I've been watching him since he used to be on Nightline uh, back in like the late 80s. I mean, he's been he's been around for a really long time. What does the end of the era mean, if anything at all? He went out Trumpy, too. He went out angry and screaming and the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, I guess the two things I'd say, first of all, for Israel itself, um, clearly it means an opportunity to move beyond the real stalemate in Israeli politics that Bibi Netanyahu represented. So polarizing, increasingly corrupt, uh, increasingly showing autocratic tendencies. And that's why you had this kind of Big Ten opposition come together from the left to the right, Islamist parties, Jewish nationalist parties. I think with Netanyahu himself, look, this is who he is. Um, and, and it's kind of like saying, you know, we're shocked, shocked that the Republican Party is what it is in 2021, that they're embracing the big lie. The idea that Netanyahu would go out in a, a torrent of conspiracy theories and allegations and, and attacks, that this is who he was been this whole 12 year tenure. Uh, and I think it, it shows the danger of this particular strain of politics uh, where you, you blend together a populism and a nationalism together with some authoritarian tendencies. And it, yeah. it ends up yeah. leaving societies deeply divided. So my hope for Israel uh, is that they, they can kind of move into a new era, healthier debate, intense differences, a lot of huge issues to deal with. But I think they can deal with it in a better way. And clearly they've decided uh, collectively as an opposition if they can just get beyond this psychodrama that has gripped them through four elections in, in less than two years here. Yeah, maybe just maybe not having somebody under indictment <laughs> might be a nicer. Oh. That would be that would be helpful. Ben, I got to have you come back on to talk about your book. Uh, thank you for being here, Ben Rhodes, Julia Ayafi, Michael Steele. Thank you all very much. Up next on the readout, Nicole Hannah Jones joins me next on the Republican freakout over her 1619 project. Plus, we'll head to Charleston, West Virginia, where Bishop William Barber is leading a moral Monday march to demand that Senator Joe Manchin do the right thing and protect democracy in America. Bishop Barber joins me live. And Stacey Abrams is also fighting to protect voting rights. She's launching a major new effort. And she's here tonight to sign you up to help. And what's the most consequential thing you've ever done in your life? Maybe raising a family, going, giving back to your community, something, something great like that. Well, tonight's absolute worst revealed his most consequential thing. And it's just sad and evil. The readout continues after this. America's refusal to reckon with its racist and violent past is often illuminated in textbooks, where for decades, through omissions, twisted logic, and downright lies, aspects of our history, from slavery to genocide to forced internment and land seizures, have been so sanitized, you'd be hard-pressed to associate it with history at all. Take, for example, how this textbook describes slavery, shown in a video by Vox. 
The master often had a barbecue or a picnic for his slaves. Then they had a great frolic. Even while working in the cotton fields, they sang songs. The beat of the music and the richness of their voices made work seem light. Yikes, that's from History of Georgia, a textbook published in 1954 that was taught across junior high schools in Georgia for decades. The danger of teaching whitewashed history isn't just tucked away in some dusty old textbook from the Jim Crow era. No, that danger is the latest conservative obsession with more than 20 states taking steps to ban the teaching of critical race theory, including Idaho, where a task force is looking into claims of indoctrination in schools. They've now submitted a public records request to the Boise School District that could cost tens of thousands of dollars because, remember, racism can be expensive. Asking for all materials, curriculum and assignments used in classrooms and teacher trainings, as well as any materials using Nicole Hannah-Jones' 1619 Project. And joining me now is Nicole Hannah-Jones, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and the creator of the 1619 Project. And, you know, at, at first, it seemed like it was a fringe sort of attack on your project, on this project. It has now become a cause, just a, a, a sampling in Nevada, Nevada groups, they want them, they want teachers there to wear body cameras so they can monitor what they're teaching to make sure that they're not teaching things like the 1619 Project. Ron DeSantis in Florida has accused, uh, is sort of, he's making hay out of, of this for himself, saying he wants to make sure that we're not teaching kids to hate their country. Uh, in Arizona, they're talking about fining teachers $5,000 if they discuss hot button topics such as racial equity. This is this seems like madness, Nicole. Um, some of them are calling it they want patriotic education instead. In your view, what is this about? Thank you for taking time to discuss this, Joy, because I, I think we're in actually a very dangerous period right now. When we look at what these laws are doing, you know, a lot of people have kind of scoffed at them. Um, when you read the language of them, they appear very silly. But when you think about what this is actually trying to do, we know that it is narrative that allows us to enact really dangerous policies. It is narrative that allows citizens to kind of accept these erosions of civil rights. So it's not incidental that the same states that are introducing these anti-critical race theory, anti-1619 project laws are also introducing voter suppression laws. These things are going hand in hand. So the textbook that you just were reading from, right, this is part of the lost cause narrative. The lost cause narrative is what justifies Jim Crow. It is a narrative that really erases the cause of the Civil War, that really tries to valorize the South and to say that Black people were not ready for self-rule, that Black people could not self-govern. And so that then justifies the enactment of laws that deprive Black people of the right to vote, that deprive Black people of their citizenship rights. So I'm actually really concerned about what these laws mean. Outside of the fact that I think they are antithetical to the First Amendment, I think they are clearly designed to stoke white resentment, to uh, really feed into this narrative that white Americans are under attack, that they are the primary victims of racism. And that is going to lead to some very, very troublesome policies. So we really should be concerned, uh, even though the law seems silly. I don't think the the uh, emotions and the kind of really hysteria that they're intended to evoke is, is silly at all. No, I agree with you because it, right, it, you're 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 seeing these things enacted at the same time that some of the same voices are attacking Black Lives Matter, which a lot of young white people uh, have joined a movement. A lot of young white people have joined, which they're, maybe their parents and grandparents don't like. And when you're also seeing this national security threat um, of white nationalism um, that is actually 
threatening the lives of you know people in state capitals. Uh, what do you make of the fact that they've now merged and fused this idea of critical race theory, which has nothing to do with K through 12 education, with the 1619 Project? They've basically turned the two things into the same thing. It is a way of vilifying your work and dragging your work into this dangerous narrative. Absolutely. I mean, this is this is the new birtherism, right? So this is really trying to take a term. Um, no, most teachers have not heard nor studied critical race theory, and to you know strategically use that to stoke resentment and um, to also really center it and hook it to the narrative of the 1619 project. But why is that? When we look last year, right, these were the, the largest uh, civil rights protests in the history of this country. You know, Vidor, Texas, which is a 99, 98% white town that had, um, you know, fought the federal government as late as the 1980s over housing segregation, was holding Black Lives Matter marches. And we saw in the polling the highest support for Black Lives Matter in the history of that movement. This is a reaction to that. So it's not just, you know, young liberals. They were really speaking to all of the moderate, all of the uh, conservative white Americans who also were looking at this and saying, oh, my God, I, I, my country isn't what I thought it was. So 1619 unsettles that narrative. And in unsettling that narrative, people are afraid that it unsettles power. And that is what we're seeing is really a, a need to to hold on to and maintain that power and divide that social movement towards justice by making white Americans, um, at least a segment of them who will kind of be susceptible to this message, believe that actually, no, you're under attack. They're trying to yeah. take your history. They've gone too far. And that's that's what why wedding these together is working so successfully. And frankly, uh, the media has played a big role in that, right? Because they were allowing Republicans to really uh, lead with this idea that, oh, look at this bad diversity training. That's critical race theory gone amok. Those two things are not related whatsoever, right. but by Telling the stories in that way, we've really fallen victim uh, to this propaganda campaign. Well, you know, and I have to tell you that, first of all, you know, the one thing the right is very good at is branding. And they, they because the, the critical race theory has the word race in it, it's a lot easier <laughs> to write than to go and talk about the complex narratives in the 1619 Project. They decided the easier brand name was critical race theory. They've now dragged a totally separate body of work into your work. Uh, I can tell you that we're trying to get Kimberly Crenshaw on. She created Critical Race Theory. We're going to make sure people understand the difference, but you're right. It's dangerous. I'm waiting for Scopes trials. I'm serious. I mean, when the first First Amendment case goes through, we're back in the Scopes trials world here. It's it's pretty scary. Um, Nicole Hannah-Jones, keep doing your work. Thank you very much for being here. Really appreciate your time. And still ahead, Stacey Abrams will be joining me to talk about her new effort because it's all one fight, guys. She's going to be talking about her effort to protect voting rights. It's all connected. But first, the twisted logic and wacky rationalizations of a certain high-profile Republican lawmaker would be hilarious also if they weren't so dangerous. Tonight's Absolute Worst is next. Stay with us. Today, Mitch McConnell made something explicitly clear. A GOP-controlled Senate would never again confirm a Democratic Supreme Court nominee. In other words, if they regain the majority, they plan to pack the court with conservative justices in perpetuity. The minority leader told radio host Hugh Hewitt that it was highly unlikely, if the next presidential campaign is underway, that he would bring a Biden nominee to the floor for a vote. 
I think in the middle of a presidential election, if you have a Senate of the opposite party of the president, you have to go back to the 1880s to find the last time a vacancy was filled. So I think it's highly unlikely. In fact, no, I don't think either party, if it controlled, if it were different from the president, would confirm a Supreme Court nominee in the middle of an election. That, uh, what was different in 2020 was we were of the same party as the Correct. president. What McConnell is doing is undemocratic. The Bible might even call it wickedness in high places, a.k.a. evil. But what he's also doing is glibly taunting Democrats, daring them to do something, anything. Because let's be honest, so far, Democrats have not done a thing to punish his rotten behavior. Let's not forget what happened in 2016 when McConnell refused to even schedule a hearing for Merrick, Garden, for Merrick Garland. Once Trump was elected, McConnell blew up the filibuster rule to confirm Federalist Judge Neil Gorsuch. McConnell called that move the crowning jewel of his time as majority leader. I do think the issue that you raise is the single most consequential thing I've done in my time as, as majority leader of the Senate. Uh, preserve the Scalia vacancy or the Gorsuch uh, appointment. Wickedness in high places. If McConnell were to have his way, Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson, who has been mentioned as a potential Biden Supreme Court pick, would suffer the same fate as Merrick Garland. She was confirmed to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals just moments ago. And despite this outright taunting, West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin insists on having a little bit of faith in Senate Republicans. Arizona Senator Kirsten Sinema believes that the way to fix a Senate broken by Republican intransigence is not to eliminate the rules or change the rules, but to change the behavior. Good luck with that, Kirsten. And then there's California Senator Dianne Feinstein, who doesn't even see a problem. She told Forbes, quote, if democracy were in jeopardy, I would want to protect it. I don't see it being in jeopardy right now. That said, it's not Democrats who are gleefully blocking the will of the American people. It's the Republican Party led by Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. And for that reason, he, despite everything else, he is the absolute worst. And after the break, Bishop William Barber, who's doing more for democracy than the senators tasked with defending it, joins me from Joe Manchin's home state. You're not going to want to miss it. Stay with us. The West Virginia Poor People's Campaign is wrapping up one of their Moral Monday marches. Their focus today, Senator Joe Manchin. Their goal, to get him to back off his unwavering commitment to the filibuster. They were joined by roughly 150 West Virginians. All the roads are falling apart here, and we need to get some things done. We need people to see that the Democrats are the ones that help them, and I, we need to make sure that our votes can't get stolen. Do you think that Joe Manchin and the positions that he's taking right now are representative of all West Virginians? I think they're representative of almost no West Virginians. Mm. Joining me now from Charleston, West Virginia, is Bishop William Barber, co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign and National Call for Moral Revival. Uh, I don't know if you were able to hear the young lady who uh, our great reporter was talking with, but are you hearing, what are you hearing from West Virginians as you're going around and talking to folks, Bishop? Well, people are angry uh, here in West Virginia. Uh, they're nonviolent, but they're angry. And it was over 300 people here from West Virginia, Ohio, Kentucky. They said this man, Joe Manchin, is lying on them. 79% of people in this state want to see the For the People Act, and they want to see the Voting Rights Act restored. But in addition to that, 
We had coal miners here today. We had poor people from the hollow, black folk from the hood. We had veterans here today. We had ministers. And they say not only about voting rights, they understand the connection between voting rights and living wages. They say Manchin is wrong on living wages. There are 350,000 people here who make less than $15 an hour. He's wrong when it comes to poor people. They say he's wrong when it comes to infrastructure because 46.7% of West Virginians stay in census tracts where they can't even afford water. Today, one of them said he was riding around in a Porsche rather than doing right by poor people and low wealth people. And another brother said, he wanted me to tell you, Joy, in this country, we are the rulers, the people. He's acting like the people are the hired help. He can sell off to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, the Koch brothers, and he has to do, they have to do what he says, and they have to do what, they have to do what he said. Well, these are mountaineers, and mountaineers say we are always free. So they're not just stopping today. They're coming to D.C. on the 23rd. They are angry. They are bothered, and they are saying this is not what their senator should be doing, and he should stop lying on them and saying he's doing it for West Virginians. You know, this West Virginia is, is, a, is a, it is a very poor state overall, uh, but it's also not a very black state. I mean, I see behind you, you have a very multiracial coalition. So we're talking about mine, people who work in the mining industry, uh, people who are working low wealth, low wage jobs who are, are, are white. Uh, and so, you know, the, the perception yeah, has right. been that these people are right wing, that they're conservative, that Joe Manchin is doing what he's doing that's because right. they are conservative. These voters, you saying that's not what you're finding. That's a bunch of foolishness. And the fact of the matter is we make a mistake when we make voting rights and restoring the Voting Rights Act and the People's Act and the filibuster all about race. It is about race, but it's also about class. Dr. King said you have to understand that aristocracy in this country, they fear low and low and poor and low wealth, black people and white people and brown people forming fusion coalition to change the nation. That's how it always happens. And so what, in a sense, by him, by him doing what he's doing, he's forcing us to show that this is about a battle for democracy. It's, a, it's racist, but it's also class-based. We've got to challenge it. And I'm telling you, the, the people here in this state, these the coal miners are just as hot as the people in the hood. The nurses are just as hot as the teachers. And, and what they're saying is, look, he's serving the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and not the U.S. Constitution. And he's and, and, and by filibustering, he's blocking, he's blocking the things that this state needs. He's standing against his own state. They didn't send him here, for, send him there for that, send him to, uh, to the Senate for that. And they are coming to D.C., Joy. Let me tell you, when you look at this state, you're right. It's one of the poorest states in the nation. But it also, West Virginia has a history. They split from Virginia because they didn't want to be like the rest of the South. And what they are saying is do right by us in this state. Why would a senator from West Virginia have his office in the lotto building? Maybe it's because he's gambling with people's health care. He's gambling with people's living wages. He's gambling with people's voting rights. Why would a senator from West Virginia stand against $15 and a union? Why would he stand against universal health care? Why would he join and encourage the West Virginia legislature in their passing of restrictive voting law? Because when you suppress the vote, Guess what? You hurt poor folk in the mountains. You hurt black folk in the city. You hurt everybody. This is not about Democrat versus Republican and left versus right and conservative versus liberal. This is about right versus wrong. This is a moral issue, a constitutional issue, and we're going to stand and fight against it. Bishop William Barber uh, in West... We, we might do a little sit. We might do some nonviolent sit-ins in his office. The people here are ready to go. They say you do not mess with mountaineers. That's the last thing you do is mess with mountaineers, and they are together. Okay. Am I right, mountaineers? Yeah. <laughs> 
we, we can hear y'all. We hear y'all. Thank you very much, Bishop William Barber and all of the mountaineers that he's got behind him. All right, let me bring in Adam Gentleson, former Deputy Chief of Staff to Senator Harry Reid. I hope you were able to hear that, Senator Reid, because, you know, there is this meme Right. That Joe Manchin has to do what he's doing because he's from a state that overwhelmingly liked Donald Trump. They did vote overwhelmingly. It's a low turnout state. But that's not what I just heard. What do you make of, 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 the, of what you just heard from those mountaineers and from Bishop Barber? Yeah, I mean, I thought that was an incredibly powerful message. Uh, the work that Bishop Barber is doing is so critical and so important. I'm glad to hear those folks are coming to D.C. Uh, I think that's such a critical uh, need right now. Um, but in terms of the overall question of whether uh, Senator Manchin is representing West Virginians or not, you know, one other piece of evidence that would suggest that his opposition to the filibuster and his opposition to uh, the For the People Act uh, are not being done on behalf of West Virginians is the simple fact that as recently as about six months ago, Senator Manchin was a co-sponsor <laughs> of the Fourth Act. So if it's so toxic to West Virginia, or if it's so dramatically opposed by people in West Virginia, that certainly raises the question of why he himself was a co-sponsor of it as recently as last Congress. Um, yeah. I don't think that is going on here. I think I think something else is going on. Well, th th let's talk about what's going on, because I have been, this has been puzzling me too, Adam. You have him being a co-sponsor, as you said, of the For the People Act. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce and the Koch brothers um, organization, uh, Americans for Prosperity, put out a list of things they would like Mr. Manchin to be against. He's now against all of them. He also is stalling on an infrastructure bill that a state as poor as West Virginia could very much need. Is that how it works, that organizations like the U.S. Chamber, like Americans for Prosperity, simply dictate to senators and then those senators do what they are told? Is that how it works? Well, you know, it's complicated. Money plays a big role in politics. Uh, it certainly has played an even bigger role since the 2010 uh, Supreme Court decision in Citizens United. Um, you know, now we have not just campaign contributions to think about, but the way these groups are able to fund outside organizations, uh, super PACs, C4s, uh, those kinds of things. Um, but I also think there's something else going on here, which is that I think Senator Manchin uh, is very caught up in something that senators uh, get very wrapped up in, which is sort of this, this uh, inside the beltway ethos that, uh, an obsession with bipartisanship. Um, I think, you know, they often fool themselves into thinking that they're living in a West Wing episode. And so I think it's a combination of factors here. And, you know, a big one is this idea that, that he's going to save the country by demonstrating bipartisanship. He said this in a number of interviews. Uh, and I think that's, that's just rather silly. You know, him and Susan Collins coming together on a bill uh, is not going to change the uh, historic forces that are working on this population and, and driving us into a polarized state that we're in right now. Um, I think that what he is able to do is something more achievable, which is to either deliver results for the people he represents or not. Uh, it really yeah. comes down to that simple choice. So far, he's choosing to not deliver those things. And I think that's a poor choice. And, and, and he's up for re-election in 2024. And the question that voters ought to ask him, it isn't about whether they voted for Donald Trump. That was a presidential vote. The question for you, Joe Manchin, is what did you do? What did you deliver for those people? Because that state is awfully poor for having a senator who seems so powerful. We got to think about that, sir. Uh, Adam Gentleson, thank you very much. Always great to have you here. And up next, the aftermath of Trump's big lie is still playing out in state houses across the country. Thankfully, Stacey Abrams is here to tell us about a big push this summer for action on the federal level protecting voting rights. And that's after this quick break.
The big lie that the election was stolen, pushed, a wan- pushed by a wannabe autocrat and his feckless followers, is starting to have real consequences for the future of our democracy. The Associated Press reports that county officials who run elections are quitting or retiring early after facing threats and intimidation during the 2020 presidential election and its aftermath and the possibility of punishment in some states. That potentially opens up those jobs at, to various kooks and conspiracy theorists. And in Arizona, we've seen what those conspiracies lead to, with the state's ongoing election fraud it. But because, you know, cyber ninjas searching for bamboo and ballots in the chicken poop wasn't bonkers enough, Republicans are now pushing to outsource that tomfoolery to other states. As, Huff, as HuffPost points out, there's no chance that audits will reverse the outcome anywhere, but they're clearly meant to undermine faith in American democracy. And according to the Brennan Center, there are currently 389 voter suppression bills in 48 states. And at least 14 states have enacted 22 new laws restricting the vote this year. The Senate could counter those efforts by passing the For the People Act, which would expand voting rights. But with Joe Manchin in opposition, its chances of passing aren't looking so great. That's why, as we enter this hot vac summer, Stacey Abrams is launching her Hot Call Summer campaign, asking supporters to call their senators every day until the For the People Act passes. And I'm joined now by Stacey Abrams, founder of Fair Fight Action and author of Our Time Is Now, available in paperback now, which is a great book. And Stacey, part of what we're seeing with these fake audits, which are also now Georgia, apparently Georgia Republicans are interested in bringing it to your state. Part of it seems to me that it's GOTV. It's a way to excite their base by saying, don't worry, we won't let the black people vote. But what's scary is it actually could stop a lot of people of color and young people from voting. How worried are you that these efforts, as ludicrous as some of them are, will actually impede people's ability to vote? Well, I'm I'm deeply concerned because it's worked before. We keep forgetting that voter suppression isn't new and these are variations on a theme. I I talk about it in our time is now that voter suppression began with the inception of this nation. But what has happened in the 21st century is that it's been digitized. It's been commoditized and it's been franchised out of the South and across the country. And what we are seeing with the fake audits, with the intimidation of election workers, with the criminalization of simply doing the job of managing democracy, we are seeing attacks on all levels of our democracy, and we should be deeply concerned about it. But we should also remember that it's our democracy and we have the right to reassert ourselves and to push back. And that's why we are doing hot call summer and why we are reaching out to every single senator, calling on each of them to do their job and to pass the For the People Act. And I want you to explain what Hot Call Summer is and how people can get involved in it, because you're right. It's not just Joe Manchin. There there are 50 of them. And it's not clear that there are not, you know, even 10 of them who are on the same side as him. With 389 bills in 48 states, every state except Delaware and Vermont is now pushing to make it harder to vote. Um, And again, I think it's partly GOTV, but we're talking about you're also seeing limiting the power of secretaries of state or taking away their power if they don't do as they're told. It was bad enough to have a secretary of state in your state that that said, I'm going to make this electorate perfect for myself, and then I'm going to run for governor. What will it mean if some of these really out there people get the job of secretary of state? So we've got to pay attention to the fact that these laws do three things. One, they're anti-voter. They are designed to stop voters that the Republicans found inconvenient in this last election, namely young people, people of color, the disabled. Number two, 
These are anti-election worker bills. They are designed to get good people to abandon their post, to criminalize those who still want to do their job, and to replace them with those who will undermine the administration of elections. And three, they are designed to subvert democracy. And the challenge is, to the extent we have secretaries of state who support and suborn this behavior, they are hastening the demise of our democracy. And this is not hyperbole. This is exactly what happens across the world when further, you know, past longstanding democracies start to erode. It begins by undermining how people feel, not about the democracy that they have, but about the administration of that democracy. And what this is intended to do is to convince voters that it is not worth the effort. To your point about being GOTV, it's to convince those who decided to show up for the first time, who you know decided they were going to push through those barriers once more, that it's not worth it. And it's trying to convince those who want to believe the big lie that there is something on in it for them on the other side, that if they break down democracy, that they get something better on the other side. And unfortunately, we know that's autocracy. We know that it is not designed for their benefit, and it's not designed for America's benefit. Yeah. So what do we do? Because I think what a lot, I mean, we, we talk about this on our calls and we do our calls. We're like, okay, what, what is the plan? What is the pushback? What yeah. do we do? So, number one, go to StopJimCrow2.com and you can get all this information. But for hot call summer, we're asking everyone to call their U.S. senators, both of them, call them every day. The number is 888-453-3211, 888-453-3211. When you call that number, it's a, it's painless. We will connect you to your U.S. senator, both the first one, then you talk to that person, then you call back. And do the second one. And yes, there are going to be some U.S. senators who won't answer the phone, who won't return your call, who will argue with you. But this is not about them. This is about them knowing that you know who they are, you know what you deserve, and that we are putting citizenship above above partisanship. We need a hot call summer because they need to know that they cannot withstand the force of the American people when we decide to protect our democracy. And you, you've been an elected official, Stacey. You know the power of big money. And you know that one of the reasons that big money, people like the U.S. Chamber and Americans for Prosperity, oppose S-1 is because it would go at the big money. A lot of people feel powerless against that kind of big, dark money. How do we defeat it? We have to remember that politicians are often motivated by money, peer pressure, or attention. And if we don't have the money to sway them, we can get to them with attention by calling out those who are doing right and calling out those who are not doing their jobs. And then it's peer pressure. It's getting those who are standing on the side of right, giving them all of the attention and support we can and forcing the other side to recognize that if they want to keep their jobs, they have to do their jobs and protect our democracy. Money is the easiest way to do it. But we've got the power of the people behind us. And if people stand up, especially those who showed up and changed the future of the world in 2020 and in January 2021 here in Georgia, if we can do that, we can do this. And hot call summer is how we're going to get this done. Have you talked to um, uh, people like Warnock, uh, Senator Warnock, um, about whether or not they believe that this kind of a strategy can work? Because he's got to run. He's in this he's in this 22. uh, uh, He's on that ballot. Absolutely. We know that there are a number of U.S. senators who stand to lose their elections in 22 if we do not protect our democracy. But we also have to remember that beyond each individual candidate, it's about who we are as a people. As a nation, are we willing to lose our nation to those who had the failed insurrection in January and decided to franchise it to every single state? The insurrection is continuing, and we've got to stop it in its tracks with the For the People Act through Hot Call Summer. 
Stacey Abrams, if you will tweet all of that information out, put it in a tweet, I will retweet it, and our show will retweet it as well. Hot Call Summer. Thank you very much, Stacey Abrams. That is tonight's readout.